Great to see you. Uh, just a little bit of information here. The Falcons are losing big. Uh, the Ryder Cup has been lost uh, for the Americans. Any Europeans here, you won. Congrats. Uh, Americans, we all lost. So there's no need to check your phones, guys. No need to check your phones. Fal Falcons are losing. Ryder Cup's over. Um, anyway, if you, if you know people who are different from you, um, most of us have uh, friends uh, that are very different from us, uh, people we work with who are very different from us, uh, people we married uh, are, are very different uh, from us. And, and, and they can be different from us in a, in a lot of different ways. Maybe their personality is very different from, from yours, the, the way you go about doing things, the way you process things, uh, their relationship to space and time. Like you're always early, they're always late, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, they, they're very different from you. You're more introspective. They're loud. You like staying in. They like going out. Uh, those sort of things. You're a morning person. They're a night person. A lot, a lot of different ways that we are different from others. If you have that person in your life, and I know you do, you probably got several of those, you would uh, probably agree that when it comes to, to people who are different from us, it, it's fun, it's, it's charming. Uh, it can be humorous, uh, it can be attractive at times, until it's not, right? <laughs> right? You, you find that, you, you find somebody who's just really different from you, and, and it's intriguing, you're like, wow, they're so different, and they see things different, their perspective is different, and they do, thing diff do things different, and that's so cool. And then just one day, out of the blue, it's just not cool anymore, is it? Is it? It's just, it's a little bit annoying. It's kind of a, a lot annoying. And, and some of us, uh, uh, we relate to those people from the mindset of, man, I really like them, and they, but there's a, they're so different, but, but here's, what, here's what I'm convinced of. If they'll just be around me a little more, they'll become more like me, right? I can change them. You've entered into relationships like that. Some of you, I'm not looking at anybody. Some of you got married thinking that if you just married them, they wouldn't be so different. How's that going? How's that, how's that working out? Yeah, we, 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 we like different until we don't. We like different until it's just kind of too much to deal with. Uh, the, the, the concept of opposites attract, it, it's a wonderful sociological experiment, right? I mean, it's a wonderful idea, but there's a reason why we also say birds of a feather flock together. Have you ever noticed we have both of those things in our lexicon? Like our, our accepted colloquialisms include opposites attract and birds of a feather flock together because we, we're, we're intrigued by different, but man, we're really comfortable with the same. We're, we're interested, we're, we're sometimes attracted to very different, but we, we feel at home with the same. There's just something comfortable about the same. We live in, we've talked about this before, we live in this internet world. We live in the algorithm world, and what does the algorithm give us? Same. Gives us same. Algorithm gives you what you've already searched for. Algorithm gives you what you've already clicked on somewhere else. They just give you more of same. Or, if you're like me, you were just talking about it in the kitchen, and then on your phone, there's an ad. You thought about it one time, and it's suddenly on your Instagram. 
Yeah, algorithm gives the same because algorithm knows we really, at the end of the day, like same. Difference great, difference fun, but we like same. When it comes to people who are different from us, here's my hypothesis. We like people who are different until we realize just how different they are. We like people who are different until we realize, oh, you're going to stay different. I, I never, it never occurred to me that you would actually stay different when you met me and, and you saw how much better it is to be like me, but you're, you're fully committed to different. Like we like different until we realize just how different people can be. Now, even in the church, this is an issue. Even in our faith, uh, this causes causes tension and maybe we don't always recognize it as tension this is an issue I think I speak for all of us this morning when I say we want you would say you would sign a paper that says we want everyone to know Jesus am I right they're like am I reading you wrong am I reading the room wrong I think that's all of us we want everybody to know Jesus it doesn't matter where you come from what your background is what, what you think about issues or who you voted for or what you're, we want everybody to know Jesus but then there's a little part of us somewhere, if we're really honest, that also says, you know, once you become Jesus, we also want you to become like us. And once you know Jesus, we want you to stop being so different. We want you to conform. We want you to, we want you to like what we like. We want you to have the same opinion that we have about issues. We want you to have the same perspective that we have. We want you to dress like us, sing the same songs that we sing, like the same things in the worship service that we like. We want you to know Jesus, but then after Jesus, we kind of want you to look just like us. We want you to be like us. We like same. Now, what I've just described is the crux of the book of Acts. This is the, the, the pivotal point in the book of Acts. It comes literally in the middle of the Bible, Acts 15, which we're going to get to in just a moment, but in the middle of the book of Acts. But it's not just physically, literally the middle of the book. It is spiritually and theologically and practically what everything shifts on when it comes to the story in the book of Acts because what's happening in the book of Acts is lots of different people are coming to know Jesus. And the church has to figure out what are we going to do when people who are not like us respond to the same Jesus that we believe in. Here is the question for the whole book of Acts. This is what has to get decided in the book of Acts. What do we do with people who are different from us? What do we do with them? when they name the name of Jesus, but there's so much about them that's not like us. When they are changed by Jesus, but they're still so different from us, what do we do with those people? I'm gonna back up just a little bit before we get into Acts chapter 13. Uh, Chris did an amazing job last week. Hope you heard his message. If not, it's online. You should listen to it. In Acts chapter 11, in Acts chapter uh, 11, the, Stephen has been martyred. We covered that early on. And out of his martyrdom, persecution 
came to the church in Jerusalem in such a way that we discuss the believers, for the most part, they all scatter to different places and, and they take the gospel with them and they, they preach Jesus wherever they go, but they're scattered. We pick up another group of those scattered believers in Acts chapter 11. This is verse 19. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, in Antioch, spreading the word only among the Jews. Same. Spreading the word among the people who were like them. These were Jewish believers going to Jewish non-believers. They had a lot of culture that they shared. They, they had history and background and experience that they shared. They were going to people who were same like me let me tell you about Jesus because we're alike but it continues some of them however men from Cyprus and Cyrene North Africa went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus the Lord's hand was with them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord and this is the division in Acts Jewish, Jewish people are coming to know Jesus that these other people who are saying, hey, this message is for everybody, not just the same bodies. This is for everybody. We're going to tell Greeks about Jesus. And the Holy Spirit worked in the lives of Greeks and Gentiles and brought them to faith. And then there's this wonderful phrase. Uh, we read it in verse 21. And a great number of people believed. A great number of people believed. That's a wonderful shift, isn't it? Not a great number of Greeks believed. Or a great number of Jews believe. It's just people will believe. I don't, I'm not even going to identify what type of people. Just people. All kinds of people. From all kinds of places. With all kinds of stories. And different experiences. And backgrounds. And traditions. And, and cultures. A great number of people were coming to know Jesus. So the leaders in Jerusalem send Barnabas to Antioch to figure out what's going on. Like you got to go check out what's going on. We're getting reports about Antioch. Go find out what's going on. And Barnabas got there, and he's like, this is amazing. He goes and gets Paul, brings him back to Antioch, and they minister to the people in Antioch for a year, preaching and teaching and discipling and sharing the gospel and building up the believers and, and growing the church. While they're there, a little bit of trivia I'm going to need in just a minute, a guy by the name of Agabus don't know much about Agabus. Agabus predicts that a famine is coming. The believers in Antioch, Greeks and Jews, different people, they are burdened for the believers in Jerusalem. We find out in other places that the Jerusalem Christians are some of the poorest, most destitute, most persecuted of the believers. So the believers in Antioch here, there's going to be famine. We need to take care of our brothers and sisters. So they take up an offering. They collect money, which gets us to verse 25 of chapter 12. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, their time in Antioch, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. Depending on your translation, it may say they returned from Jerusalem, or it may say they returned to Jerusalem. What happened was they took the collection of the offering, they went back to Jerusalem, told them about what was happening, and now they've gone back to Antioch. So two-way trip to Jerusalem, drop off the collection for the poor uh, believers in Jerusalem. Now they go back to Antioch. This is chapter 13. Now in the church at Antioch, 
There were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Two things about this episode. Number one, notice the diversity of leadership at the church at Antioch. This amazing thing that's now been going on for over a year produces a very diverse set of leaders representing a very diverse set of believers in Antioch. We have Barnabas. We know him. They mentioned Simeon called Niger. Niger means black or dark. Most people assume Simeon was from North Africa. Some people think this Simeon is Simon of Cyrene who carried Jesus' cross when he fell. If you're familiar with the crucifixion story, Jesus stumbles, Simon of Cyrene takes the cross. Some people think that's this dude right here. Simeon is really Simon of Cyrene of North Africa. Uh, next is Lucius of Cyrene, definitely from North Africa, followed by Menaean, who was somehow related to or close, closely associated with the Roman leader Herod. In other words, they were different. They were different. Barnabas, Jewish believer. Simeon and Lucius, most likely North African believers. Menaean grew up in the Roman officials' circle. Very different set of leaders representing a very different set of believers, different backgrounds, different socioeconomic experiences, different cultures, different traditions. Um, what's, what's happening in Acts is the church is exploding into not same, but multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-language different experiences, different backgrounds. Everybody's coming to know Jesus from all different places and all different backgrounds. And yet, as they come to know Jesus, as they have that in common, their backgrounds are still different. Like Jesus doesn't erase our uniqueness and distinctions when we come to know him. He doesn't erase all of our past. He brings us into the kingdom with everything that we have experienced. Second important note, the Spirit of God makes it clear that Saul and Barnabas are supposed to go tell other people about Jesus. They're supposed to leave Antioch after that year, and they're supposed to take the gospel out to other places. This begins uh, what we refer to as the missionary journeys of Paul. If you've ever heard that talked about, if you had an old King James Bible with the maps in the back, like you, this is your jam, like you're ready. If you did Bible drill, like you're all over this one because one of those maps would have been first missionary journey of Paul. If you like maps, I brought a map. Look at that. Look at that. I'm, I'm here. It's right there. It's right there. Yeah, it's sort of squashed and squished. But if you love maps... If you don't love maps, you got to look at it anyway. We're going to do like a really fast tour, because I'm going to need this. We're going to do a really fast tour of Paul's first missionary journey, and then we'll land the plane. I promise we will land the plane. Paul and uh, Barnabas leave Antioch. They sail to, this is Cyprus. You can't see it on the screen. That little island is Cyprus, which is where Barnabas is from. 
right? So he's, he's going back to all his homies in Cyprus, and he's going all over the island with Paul, sharing the gospel, telling people about Jesus. They end up on the other side of the island in Paphos. It's right down at the bottom of our screen. You may not be able to see that. They end up in Paphos. You're going to read this this week. We have an Acts reading plan we're all doing together because we're swimming through Acts. If you didn't get a copy of the reading plan, it's on the table out there. It's also on the website. You may want to take a picture or a Google map because as you're, as you're reading, you can kind of follow where Paul is. In Paphos, uh, Paul meets a, an official who's interested in Jesus. Like he wants to know Jesus. He also meets a sorcerer who is not interested in Jesus and is very aggressive and hostile towards Paul and is trying to run them off. And Paul, obviously, causes the sorcerer to go blind, as one does when you meet a sorcerer. Because of that, the official gives his life to Christ. Like, already, people are coming to know Jesus. Paul and Barnabas leave from there. They sail to Perga and Pamphylia, which is up in this area. They keep going up. Uh, that is Pisidia, Antioch, if you could see all of it, not to be confused with Antioch, Antioch, which is where they started. They go up to uh, Pisidian, uh, Antioch, and, and while they're there, you'll see that Paul develops this routine. We'll talk about this more next week. Paul develops this routine where he goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath and tells Jewish believers about Jesus and sees whether they're going to receive it or not. So while they're there, Paul goes into the synagogue. They're doing a reading from the Old Testament. They recognize that Paul and Barnabas are rabbis. So after the Old Testament reading, they say to Paul, would you like to say anything? which is all Paul ever needs to say something. Right? So Paul gets up, and as he does so masterfully always, he says, all right, let's talk about this because this is pointing to Jesus. Everything you've heard in your life about the Old Testament was trying to get you ready for a Messiah who's going to come, and we crucified him, and he rose again, and he's the Savior, and you should give your life to him. And they were intrigued, right? They were so intrigued by Paul's teaching that they said, hey, you need to come back next Sabbath and tell us more. Paul goes outside, a crowd of people follow him because they want to keep listening to what he has to say. He comes back the next Sabbath, and we read in verse 44, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Like, this is what the Spirit is doing in this region, people are coming to hear more about the Lord, which doesn't sit well with the religious leaders. Again, this is the pattern Paul has. He goes to the synagogue. He preaches the word of God. People respond. Other people get angry. And certainly in this case, the religious leaders got angry. They began to persecute him to the point that Paul says in verse 46, we had to speak the word of God to you first, since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, which I think is like a totally wicked jab, right? Like Paul had a way. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles were so thrilled. Somebody's going to tell them the gospel and tell them the story of Jesus, and they begin to respond, which causes more persecution, and this is where Paul and Barnabas shake the dust off of their, off of their sandals and say, well, we'll go tell somebody else. If, if, if y'all don't want us here, 
We'll go tell somebody else, and this becomes the pattern. Back to the map. They go to Iconium. Same things happen. They preach in the gospel. A great number of Jews and Greeks believed in Acts 14.1. They make more people mad. The leaders conspire to kill them. They go somewhere else. This other place is a place called Lystra. On the way into Lystra, Paul heals a lame man. Are we keeping up? Am I going too fast? Paul heals a lame man in Lystra. And the people are so amazed that they think Paul and Barnabas are gods, like mythological gods. You'll read it this week. They think Paul is Hermes because he's the one who talks too much, if you remember your mythology. They think you must be Hermes because you talk all the time. He must be Zeus because he kind of sits back and watches everything. And they, they started to sacrifice to them. They started like bringing things to sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas. And Paul said, whoa, 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 whoa. Hey, we're just people. We're just people like you. We are not gods. We're trying to point you to the one true God. Just listen to what we're saying. Bit of local trivia. Um, there was kind of a reason they jumped to that assumption. About 50 years before this, a local philosopher, poet, storyteller had spread this legend all around that city that years ago, Hermes and Zeus had actually visited Lystra. And they came disguised. They went to a thousand different homes and they were rejected in all 1,000 homes until finally an older couple welcomed them in, showed them hospitality. So Zeus and Hermes blessed the home of this older couple and destroyed the thousand other homes. So the people of Lystra were like a little touchy if they thought somebody was actually Zeus and Hermes. So they jumped to that conclusion. Paul says, no, 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 that's not who we are. We're not them. We're just pointing you to the one true God. Verse 18 says, even with these words, even as Paul's trying to you know, talk them back, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They persuaded them. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead, which is quite a turn of events, is it not? You go from they think I'm a god to they almost killed me. That's a, that's a range right there. So Paul, they begin to move on. They go to Derby. Verse 21 says they preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they sort of worked their way back, checking on all the places they had been all the way back home to Antioch. And they get back home to Antioch and they did what you and I would do. You are not going to believe what happened. And they get back to Antioch and they start saying, like, we saw God move, we saw the Spirit of God move. People kept coming to Christ. They almost killed us one time. They kept persecuting, they kept stoning us. We kept going. People kept coming to Jesus. You would not believe what happened. This is it, verse 27. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Paul and Barnabas said it was amazing. It's incredible. God was working. The Spirit of God was moving. It was electric. And then we read Acts 15, 1. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch. Everything was phenomenal until certain people got there. You ever met certain people? Like you know them? Like you got names for certain people? Right now you're thinking of certain people? Doesn't matter how great it is. Doesn't matter how obvious it is that God is at work 
or, or how obvious is it this was such a good thing certain people always find problems don't they certain people always have reasons to complain certain people can always criticize anything that is happening certain people came God was moving the spirit of God was changing life this was an unbelievable new story this had never happened before the way all of these different people were coming to faith and coming into the church but certain people didn't like it we read the rest of that verse certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses you cannot be saved I don't know that I'm an expert on this but I'm, I, I think I'm pretty clear on this that God is actually the only person that gets to decide who can and can't be saved I mean I think that's how this works as best I've studied the Bible like nobody gets to step in and say, mm-mm, not you. Mm-mm. Nope. You got to fill out this paperwork and you got to check all these 10 things and then get back to us and we'll let you know if you can become a Christian. No, it doesn't work that way. But certain people show up and they realize people who are different from us are coming to Christ. We got to get a hold on this. We got to make everybody the same. So it's great that you think you met Jesus. It's great that you think the Holy Spirit did something, but you got to do all the stuff we did. You got to do what we did. Like we had to check all these boxes when we got in. You got to check those same boxes. We had to jump through some hoops in order to get in. I need you to jump through some hoops in order to get in. And this, as you can imagine, absolutely set off Paul and Barnabas because they are fresh from this trip in city after city they had seen God move they had seen the power of the Holy Spirit they had seen people from all walks of life and backgrounds come into the family of God and now somebody was questioning what God was doing somebody was putting up barriers to other people coming into the kingdom, so Acts chapter 15, this is, this is the pivot moment in Acts. Acts chapter 15, they have what we've come to call the Jerusalem Council. They get all the religious leaders, like all the big wigs, all the muckety-mucks. They put them all in a room, and they said, figure it out. So they start debating. Uh, the religious leaders talk, and then Peter talks, and then Paul and Barnabas talk. And then James stands up. James, who is emerging now as the leader of the church in Jerusalem, James stands up, and James makes this statement in Acts 15, 19. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Just really simple. This, this is what I think we should do. Let's stop putting up walls for people to come to Jesus. Let's stop making requirements of people that Jesus didn't make for people to come to faith. Let's not make it hard. Let's throw the door wide open. Let's invite everybody from anywhere, with any background, no matter who they are. Let's tell them about Jesus and let's allow them to come and let's welcome them in when they give their life to Christ. Let's not make it 
difficult. Now we read this story, we read the context of this story, and specifically the requirement that they're talking about circumcision, and we go, oh, well, of course they shouldn't have been asking people to do that. Now, of course that's not, that doesn't have anything to do with salvation. It is really for us to look, easy for us to look at this story and say, yeah, I agree with James, but sometimes when, when different people come to faith, from backgrounds that aren't like yours, cultures that aren't like yours, experiences that aren't like yours, we can, in the church, the American church especially, we can say, it's great that you came to Jesus. Now you need to become like us. We love it that you came to Jesus, but now you need to talk the way we talk and you need to dress the way we dress and you need to think about all the issues the way we think about them because a real Christian wouldn't do and a real Christian doesn't and, a real, and all Christians should. I'm not filling in the blanks. I'm going to let God do that for you. We, we, we don't recognize it in ourselves the way we recognize it in these people. But we have a tendency to say, yeah, we want everybody to come. We just want you to look like us after you come. We want you to think like us after you come. We want you to share our opinions about everything. And James was right. Stop making it difficult for people to come to Christ. Let them come. Let the Holy Spirit do what the Holy Spirit wants to do in their life. You know one of the reasons the gospel went viral in Acts? Because it would have shut down in Acts 15 if they had made a different decision. Here's one of the reasons. The gospel went viral because they decided not to cookie-cutter everyone's spiritual experience. They didn't say, well, it can only be this, and it can only be this, and you have to fill out this form, you have to pray this thing, and then you have to do this, and you have to... There was... If you believe Jesus, come. We're brothers and sisters now. We still have our uniqueness. Like, you have a different background than I have. We've got to work through some of that. You see some things differently than I see them. That's okay. You and I both have Jesus, and that's enough. That's enough. I don't have to question what he's doing in you. I can celebrate what he's doing in you. I, I, I don't have to become the Holy Spirit's umpire. And, and I think sometimes we try to be that. I think sometimes we try to be the Holy Spirit's referee. Well, you, you're not work, you can't work there. You're not working there. Surely not them. A year or so ago, I was thinking about this between services. A year or so ago, uh, there was reported of a, a movement of God's Spirit on a, on a college campus, not, not locally, other state. It was reported of a movement of God's Spirit on another campus and it took about an hour and a half before Christians all began to explain why it wasn't really a movement of the Holy Spirit <laughs> oh well they're not doing this right oh well if it's that then it can't be there. oh if they're you know what I said I'm not there I hope it's a movement of the Holy Spirit I'm going to pray that God's working in people's lives we, so much in our world we have this need to be contrarian, right? 
We have this need to say, well, if it doesn't fit within my experience, it must not be genuine. It must not be true. You are not the Holy Spirit's referee. We do not get to tell the Holy Spirit who he can and can't change. We just get to join him in what he's already doing. We're just supposed to step in to what he's already doing and how he's already moving. James says something else that's kind of interesting, though. Verse 19. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, to the Gentiles, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. This instruction is steeped in the historical, cultural moment of transition in Acts. And I don't want to dive into that at this point. But James says, on the Jewish side, let's stop making it difficult for them to come to faith. Let's believe the Holy Spirit is at work in them. But then he says to the Gentiles, like, I, I want to say a couple things to you. A, this isn't like a free-for-all, just do whatever you want once you come to Christ. Like, be, be pure and holy in your sexual relationships. Why does he pinpoint that? In Greek culture, uh, Greek culture was a very over-sexualized culture. Very extremely over-sexualized culture. And so James steps in and says, look, I, I still want you to protect yourself. I want you to guard yourself. I want you to realize there are moral implications to following Christ. It's not what saves you. It's not how you get to heaven. I'm doing this because I love you. You're in a culture that's going to suck you into some, some things that will destroy you. I want you to still protect yourself. I want you to know that God loves you and he desires a, 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 a life of purity from you. But then at the same time, he mentions um, food sacrifice to idols, animals that have been strangled, anything with blood in it. That's a reference to Old Testament dietary laws. And, and we kind of jumped into some of that back in the summer series. I don't, I don't want to redo that. Those are not necessary for salvation. That's not what James is saying. James is saying right now, we have rivers coming together. We have people being saved out of Judaism. And man, they've been keeping some really strict laws for a long, long time. And it's hard for some of them to separate that. And we've got Gentiles who don't know anything about these laws. And they're coming to faith. And we're trying to build a church made up of all of those people. We're trying to build a family where all of those people come together. So, Jewish believers, stop putting all of these harsh regulations on Gentile people. But, but Greeks, Gentiles, can you respect the conscience of Jewish believers because he says, they hear this every Sabbath. Like, they've been taught the, the law of Moses over and over. Their conscience is very formed by this list of rules. And so, 
If you're not Jewish, can you just be gracious towards the ones who hold to that sort of restriction? Why did he, why did he mention those three? Because those three would impact their ability to sit down and have a meal with somebody who is different from them. If you were a Jewish person and you sat down with a Gentile person, a Greek person, to have a meal, it's very likely that when they served whatever they served, you would think, are they sure this wasn't offered to idols? Are they sure this was killed the appropriate way? Because of this level of of conscience on the part of the Jewish person, a lack of understanding on the Greek person's part would mean we will probably never really be in fellowship with one another. And so James says, here's what I want you to do. Can I have both of you be gracious to one another? You're coming out of different backgrounds and different... Can you just be respectful of of the conscience of the other person? I think what James is teaching us is a spirit of graciousness and consideration should flow both ways among believers. A spirit of graciousness and consideration should flow both ways. Should one side demand that the other side have this physical surgery to prove that they're committed? Well, of course not. Should one side demand that the other side keep all of their traditions and all of their rules? Well, of course not. Should the other side be gracious and understanding? Some of this is really important to them. It's not important to me because I didn't grow up that way. I didn't come through that stream. I didn't hear that every time I went to church. But it's really important to them. Can I just be gracious to them? I don't, I don't have to believe that the way they're doing it is the only way to do it. But I can be gracious. I can be considerate of what's happening in their life. You see, we're, we're going to fall on, on different subjects, issues, opinions, habits, practices. We're going to fall on different spots when it comes to our conscience, what the Holy Spirit has put on our conscience. And there are going to be some things that, that I don't do because I just don't think I should do them, but I shouldn't make that a command that you don't have to do them. And there are going to be some things that you feel very bound by with your conscience that, no, that's wrong for me, which is great. Listen to your conscience, but stop short of saying, well, everybody has to do it the way I do it. Everybody has to stay out of this because I stay out of it. What I can say is, here's some things that have helped me, whether it be in my relationship to God or this has helped me avoid sin. This has helped me in my marriage. This has helped me as a parent. I could say, hey, here's some things that have helped me. They might help you, which is different from saying, this is the way we did it. I think this is the way the Bible says everybody should do it. Like we blur those lines a lot. We blur those lines a lot. I'm not saying there aren't lines. There are. Like there's, where the Bible is clear, right and wrong, let's be clear. But let's be careful and let's be gracious when we try to say, this is what I do, you should have to do what I do. Because that's, that's not what the Bible says. And here at this pivotal point in the book of Acts, James says, 
Can we learn to love each other because we both have Jesus? Even if we disagree about some other things. Can we learn to be in fellowship with one another because we both love Jesus? Even though you may share an opinion about some issue that I differ with. But if Jesus is what brings us together, it's enough. It's enough. We can graciously talk through and walk through all of the other questions if we'll let Jesus bring us together. We're different. Some of us are really different. We're different. And there's beauty in that difference. And there's energy in that difference. And sometimes, let's, let's be honest, it's painful, the difference. It's annoying, it's frustrating. But if we can learn to be gracious with one another through our differences because Jesus is everything to both of us, we will learn to mature and to grow. We will learn what the people in the book of Acts learned, that everybody needs to come to Jesus. And we may still be different after that happens, but we'll both have Jesus. God, we ask that you work in our hearts and minds as to how to live this out and how, how to apply it. There's so many different areas of our life that this impacts. Teach us wherever we fall. Maybe, maybe we grew up in church and, and we were just really formed by certain teaching and certain rules. And the rules aren't necessarily bad. Or maybe we didn't at all. Maybe we come from a very different Background, But God, we can meet in the middle of Jesus. We can fellowship with one another. We can be brothers and sisters because of Jesus. Help us not to get distracted by all, by all of the secondary and tertiary and, and down-the-line issues that come far behind Jesus. That we would see a movement of the Holy Spirit that just draws people to Him draws people from everywhere and every walk of life to know him, to love him, to experience what many of us in this room have experienced in a relationship with Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen.